0: It looks really good. It finally hit me that Delaware's not just playing to keep it close. Delaware's here to win.
1: But if they're going to really lock down in a game, this would be the one to do it. Overall, I think this is their identity. There weren't enough things that you and I could say on the broadcast to praise... Eric Carter. I do have to put out a
0: formal apology to Darian Bryant. It's over
1: for the Eagles. When you're only better than the Cleveland Browns, you're not very
0: good. This is going to be the Delaware defense through and through.
1: If you lose, you're leaving yourself on the bubble with all of these other teams that I would say are just as good as you are. Losing Nicole, that's a big part of what we did a year ago. It's a process, and we need to really lay a strong foundation of who we are as a basketball program. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage Podcast. Let's get into some NFL football. We're calling this first down and five. Five quick questions on the four wild card round matchups. If you're unfamiliar, it's the number six seeded Colts taking on the number three Houston Texans and the five Seahawks taking on the Cowboys, the four seed on Saturday. And then Sunday, Chargers, the five seed, visit the four seeded uh, Baltimore Ravens and the Eagles, the sixth seed, visit the third seeded Chicago Bears. My first question to you, Jake, is of these four games, Which interests you the most? Which one are you most looking forward to?
0: Colts, Texans. And I don't think it's even close. If I was an Eagles fan, Eagles and Bears would be a really interesting game. I think Seahawks and Cowboys, Chargers and Ravens don't really hold much appeal unless you are a specific fan of those teams. But overall, from a football perspective, it's one of the hottest teams in football, the Colts, against probably one of the other hottest teams in football. They're from the same division. You have a potential comeback player of the year in Andrew Luck. And then you have the Texans offense, which, fun fact, DeAndre Hopkins had 100-and-something catches with zero drops. That stat just came out today. And it just shows how dominant they are and how much Watson really can lean on those top-tier guys. So I think that game has the most potential to be not a blowout. Sorry, kind of spoiled to the next question. But if I had to pick a game, it'd be Colts-Texans. But if I was an Eagles fan... Eagles-Bears will probably be up there,
1: too. Yeah, for me, it's Eagles-Bears, but obviously because I have the Eagles rooting interest outside of that game, I think Colts-Texans is interesting. I also like Chargers-Ravens, though, because I think those are two teams that, moving forward, could challenge the top seeds in the AFC, and particularly the Chargers, if they can get by Baltimore, but it's really a tough matchup for them to have to go cross-country playing on the road in the first round, despite during the regular season, looking like maybe the second or third best team in the AFC. They get a tough matchup because Baltimore wins their division and the Chargers come in as a wild card. I think that game, the Sunday afternoon game, holds some more, a little more interest to me. But the Colts are a really kind of hot team right now. One loss across the last, what, six weeks of the season. They have that basically a playoff game last week against Tennessee that they pretty much dominated that's that's a tough matchup for the texans and that should be a fun one
0: the thing about the ravens that doesn't really i don't want to say doesn't really impress me is that if you look at the two afc teams that have a bye, the new england patriots and the kansas city chiefs and you look at the coaching staff bill belichick and andy reed they're smart enough to not get beat by this lamar jackson mania they understand that he's going to run the football But you know, and you saw the Ravens game against the Chargers. You saw the Ravens game late in the season against the Buccaneers. These are coaches that are not quite ready to scrap the entire defensive game plan and make a new one to handle this Lamar Jackson mania. So I think the Ravens have potential to do damage, partially because their defense is just so good. But it's only... As, against bad coaches. I mean, their last game against the Browns, they beat them handily. I mean, it's 26-24 on paper, Baker Baker Mayfield had a garbage time touchdown. It shouldn't have really been that close. The Ravens are a good team, but they're only good against bad teams.
1: Let's move to the second question, which of these four games do you think is most likely to be a blowout?
0: Seahawks Cowboys on both sides. I, I don't know which I don't know which team is going to do the blowing out. But one of those two teams are going to win it all. The Seahawks, they have no legion of boom anymore. Although their defense, to be fair, has been They've been good the last couple of weeks. It's respectable. And Russell Wilson is, again, in one of the top tiers of the quarterback more, uh, scale. But the Cowboys have Amari Cooper. I thought that was a really good trade. I didn't think it was going to be this good of a trade in that offense. But Ezekiel Elliott and Amari Cooper, they give a points up. So I don't know which team's going to win. But whichever team does, it'll be by blowout.
1: I agree with you on this question. The Seahawks are such a tough team to guess what they're going to do. They they could come out and look like the favorite to come out of the NFC. They, two weeks ago, went, or excuse me, at home, beat Kansas City. And Russell Wilson made these phenomenal tight throws down the stretch in the game. Doug Baldwin, Tyler Lockett, they both looked really good. And then you add Chris Carson Mike Davis in the running game, which is one of the more steady and probably underappreciated running games in the NFL, to Russell Wilson looking like a fringe MVP candidate, then last week they almost lose to Arizona, an Arizona team that basically you know, wanted to lose that game because they won as high a draft pick as they could possibly get, and a team that's playoff hopes died in week four or five. It's been that same way over the course of the last couple of years for the Seahawks. And then you look at Dallas, a team that has 10 wins on the season, but last week had a very tough time defeating a New York Giants team that, like the Cardinals, didn't have a lot to play for and has played in the weakest division in the NFC and maybe in the entire league throughout this season and has a questionable quarterback in Dak Prescott. But they're at home. Seattle has to travel af- away across the country. I could see this going either way. I think the Seahawks probably have a bit better of a chance. I think they're the more talented team. But if they don't show up, Dallas could easily pull away in this game. And vice versa, if the Cowboys don't show up, this could be a game that Seattle dominates and looks like one of the best teams in the league. Yep. I moving, to, moving to the uh, third question of our first down in five, you're listening to Blue Hen Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD. Do either of the sixth seeds, the Eagles in the NFC and the Colts in the AFC, do either of them scare you? And maybe comparing them to the teams that had a chance on the final day of the season to make it in, the Vikings, the Titans, and the Steelers.
0: The Colts scare me. The Eagles don't scare me, but the Eagles can win. If the Eagles end up running the table, I won't be surprised, but they don't really scare me as a... offensive-dominant, defensive-dominant powerhouse. The Colts, on the other hand, there was a stretch when Andrew Luck threw 300 yards and three touchdowns for, I believe, six straight games. They have two running backs that can do it all. They have two tight ends that can do it all. And they have T.Y. Hilton. They have Chester Rogers. They have uh, Dontrell Inman, a player that you never think is uh, revitalized on this Colts offense. Not to mention the Defensive Rookie of the Year, Darius Leonard, from the on the line. The Colts are a good team. They're a really good team. If I had to pick, and I said it on the show, or uh, well, I said it to a bunch of friends, and I said it later on the show, that I thought the Colts are going to run the table. I think they're the sixth seed on paper, but much better on the AFC rankings. And for the Eagles, it's Nick Foles. You saw what he did last year. It's kind of that, kind of the Tom Brady effect. He's not playing well. Nick Foles actually is playing well the last few games. But even if he is not playing elite, you kind of just say. Yeah, it's Nick Foles. We know what he can do. He did it last year, and I'm kind of ready to see him do it again. Not me personally, but the fans are probably ready to see him do it again.
1: Nick Foles over the final three games of the season, second in the NFL in completion percentage to only Drew Brees. He lead, led the NFL in passing yardage and yards per attempt and quarterback rating and in offensive DVOA across those last three starts, uh, all three of which the Eagles won against the Texans, the Rams and the Redskins to make it into the playoffs on the final week of the season. I think that the Eagles are the much more scary opponent for NFC teams compared to the Minnesota Vikings, who if they had defeated the Chicago Bears would have made it in as the sixth seed. I do think that they're still kind of right in the middle of the pack, though, with with the Bears, with the Seahawks, as those teams that probably have an okay chance of of making a run but will have to really put together a, a really nice stretch to get through a pretty deep playoff field. I like the Colts too, though. And they're, you know, I would say their chances are no uh, less than the Texans chances or than the Chargers or the Ravens chances. I think they're right in the mix. And they certainly scare me if I'm one of the top seeds more than Tennessee with either Marcus Mariota with an arm who he, that he didn't have feeling in or Blaine Gabbard at quarterback, or even the Steelers who have the potential to have all the firepower in the world offensively, but can't seem to keep it together. Uh, and you We'll talk maybe a little bit later about the Antonio Brown situation. when we go through some of the teams that didn't make the playoffs, but that's a very dysfunctional organization. The Colts really are on a, a really nice role, so that team would scare me a little bit. Of the eight teams playing this weekend, which has the best chance of going all the way?
0: I'm gonna say the Colts. Again, I'm I'm really high on the Colts. I think they are both offensively capable and just defensively bend, not break. I think they'll do enough against these high-powered AFC offenses. But besides the Colts, I'm going to go the Bears. I think Chicago has a real chance of going deep in the playoffs. They have Khalil Mack. They have Eddie Jackson on the defensive end. We know they're really talented. But Mitch Trubisky is good. People kind of got lost in that. He put up a six-touchdown game, and then two weeks later or three weeks later, he played the Rams in that— disgusting game on both sides where I think it was like eight interceptions thrown through both teams but Trubisky and company should they get past the Eagles there's really no reason to believe that they can't compete with these teams they are a dark horse quote-unquote out of the NFC no one really expected them to win the division and with that on their back with coach Matt Nagy It's hard to imagine the Bears slowing down against any opponent, even if it's the Saints, even if it's at New Orleans, which it will be.
1: I'm going to go with the Seahawks for this one, the team with the best chance of running the table, because even though there's some uncertainty, as I discussed before with this team, I think they're playing the worst of the eight teams this weekend. So I think they have the best chance of making it out of this weekend. And if they end up at New Orleans, that is a very tough matchup. But I don't really know who's going to win these other games. I I think all of these other games are really close. So for the fact that I think that they make it out of this weekend, I'll go the Seahawks, and they do have the talent to put together a run. It won't be easy. Drew Brees at home is a whole other animal, and the Saints probably have the inside track to winning the whole NFC. Uh, And the case for the Bears in that circumstance is compelling because defense travels, unlike offense, where it's a little bit tougher to play in environments like that in New Orleans. Uh, but I'll go with the Seahawks, because I think that they have a easy shot at the Cowboys this weekend, and then maybe they can put a run together after that. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Delaware men's basketball had three games over our hiatus. They went one and two in the three. They first lost at home against Delaware State in the final game of non-conference play. Then it was two CAA games on the road, first at Hofstra, a huge loss, the Greatest loss in Delaware men's basketball history in thirty years, and then a bounce back double overtime win at Northeastern. So certainly a lot for us to get into. Let's start it off first, though, with the Delaware State game, which was some time ago. But I mean, it's Delaware State. How how did the Blue Hens fall in that game, and did you see? Did it seem like they kind of carried that into the beginning of the next game against Hofstra? Uh,
0: the Delaware State game was really interesting because everybody played pretty okay i mean eric carter's 23 points was normal matt Varetto, kevin anderson and ryan allen all joining him in double digits but what really hurt them is their three-point shooting they shot six for 30 from three and i think that's the one thing that carried over hocks they were abysmal from three delaware shot fine from the field, 25-58. It's not elite, but it's good enough to win a basketball game. But if they're shooting 6-30 for 30 from 3, there's a very slim chance that they win a basketball game. And they almost did, but just came short.
1: And at the me- in the meantime, Delaware State in that game was 13-27, to 27, just under 50%. They had some crazy shots go down in the final 5-10 minutes of the game. Shalik Edwards, had four threes all in the second half. And then this guy, Kevin Larkin, who is a graduate of Sussex Tech down in uh, Sussex County, Delaware, he had a, a phenomenal game. Gets the game-winning put back off a rebound that bounced right in front of him. He had 22 points and 13 rebounds along with four assists as one of the primary ball handlers for Delaware State. But like you said, solid offensive performance from the Blue Hens. 71 points. Came down to the final possessions. They get a really good look from Ithiel Horton from a couple steps inside. I mean, a couple steps outside the three point line at the end of the game as the clock expires that he just barely missed. But then against Hofstra, I don't think there was anything good to take away. 91 to 46 was the score. Eric Carter, first game of the season under 10 points. The leading scorer was Matt Vreda with nine off the bench. She was four of 10 in 23 minutes of play. Jake. You were up there at that game. What did you see? What what happened there against Hofstra?
0: So, the score of 91-46 to 46 does not represent how both teams played. Delaware played a good basketball game, and it's really hard for me to say because they scored 46 points. But Justin Wright Foreman and that entire Hofstra team could have shot the ball from the bleachers, and I would have told you it went in. It was... It was almost unrealistic to see the shots that were going in. Justin Wright Foreman obviously led all scorers with 29 points. But even Eli Pemberton had 17 points. He was hitting shots that nobody would expect. Hands in their faces. Matt Moretto playing really tight deep. This game should not have been this much of a blowout. If you told me that these teams are going to face each other, well, and they will face each other, um, I would say the margin of victory would probably be 10, 15 points. These teams are... Evenly matched, Delaware shot extremely poorly. They missed their first 10 three-pointers and Hofstra shot well. One of the writers there I was sitting next to for the local newspaper here on Long Island kind of turned to me and she was not extremely knowledgeable about Hofstra athletics, but she knew what was going on. And she kind of asked, is this normal? And I said, for which team? And she said, yes, both. Is this normal? And I said, no, this is a terrible game. For the blue hens that they should be doing better and hofstra has to miss a shot eventually they didn't miss a shot that game but they have to end up missing a shot so i think the game was a lot closer than the score says
1: delaware will get another crack at hofstra as you mentioned they the pride come to the bob carpenter center and actually delaware's final game of the regular season on march 2nd before the caa tournament down in charleston south carolina one thing I definitely wanted to ask you about from this game, since you were there and I was only following along from back here in Newark, what was up with the backcourt? Ithiel Horton does not score a single point. He's 0 for 10 from the floor and 0 for 6 from 3 in this game. Ryan Allen was 3 of 10, and Kevin Anderson was 1 of 9 from the floor. He was 0 of 4 from a three-point round. together, just four made baskets in 29 attempts from the field. Or, excuse me, uh, yeah, yeah, four main baskets in in 29 attempts for those three
0: guys in the backcourt.
1: What what happened there?
0: The Hofstra team had a really funky uh, press that it was a very well-rehearsed, very well-practiced, thought-out kind of hard press. But they let, they almost forced the ball to Ithiel Horton, but they put a hard press on Kevin Anderson, put a hard press on Ryan Allen and kind of let Ethiel Horton dribble into a corner, and then they adapted from that. So that kind of led to some backcourt troubles. But I think the even bigger issue was not even them. Eric Carter fouled out very early into the first. And you know how much Eric Carter does for this offense. You know how much the high pick and roll is deadly, him hitting and Kevin Anderson, him and Ethiel Horton. So you totally scrape the best play out of your playbook. You can't high pick and roll with Colin Goss. Nothing against Colin Goss. But no, he's not nobody's Carter. Carter, yeah. Yeah, you totally ruin your playbook and you're forced to kind of do what you can with the players on the court. So I think the backcourt played poorly, but it's almost not their fault. Well, given it is their fault, they missed the shot, but it's not their fault. I know what you're Carter saying. There.
1: So kind of as moving forward, the ramifications of that, it seems to me, and tell me if you disagree, but it seems to me like they're going to live and die with Eric Carter games. Like if he doesn't have... 15-plus points and 8 rebounds. They don't have a chance. And if he does, then you start talking about what did Ryan Allen do in the game, what did Horton do, Verreto, did those other guys do enough to put them over the edge. But if he doesn't have at least his average-type game, his C or B game, there's nowhere else for this team to really turn. Everything from an offensive structure crumbles without having him there in the middle.
0: It's a blessing and a curse to have Eric Carter. It's great because he's Eric Carter, but the problem is you practice so much with him and you have so many plays, your high pick and roll, your low ball screen where you set it for Matt Beretta or Darian Bryant on the outside who cuts to the middle, that when he's not there, you look like a different team. So if Eric Carter doesn't score 15, and you kind of get this, Last year's Drexel vibe, and especially during the CAA tournament, where if Tremaine Isabel does not have 25 points, you can kiss Drexel's hopes goodbye. Delaware, I think, is a little bit better off because Eric Carter can have 15 points and they'll still be okay. But yeah, I agree with you. Eric Carter doesn't have 15. Eric Carter doesn't have seven, eight boards, six, seven assists. You can just say the Blue Hens lost.
1: You're listening to Blue Hens Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD. I'm Brandon Hovak with Jake Lampert. So they lose to Delaware State. They get blown out by Hofstra. Then two days later, they go to Northeastern and pull off maybe their best win of the season. 82-80, to double overtime, holding Vasa Busiccia, one of the best players in the CAA last year, largely in check. He just had 11 points off 4 of 11 shooting. He had 5 turnovers. And offensively, Ithiel Horton goes from 0 points off 0 of 10 shooting, back onto the bench, but plays 41 minutes in this game, scores 27 points at career-high, 9 of 14 from the floor, 4 of 7 from 3. Two other Blue Hens, Allen and Carter, reach double figures, and Delaware pulls off a great win.
0: It's, like you said, it's Eric Carter scoring 18 points. I was not down at that game, but I can only imagine that Eric Carter scoring 18 points was the reason that Ethel Horton can score 27. Hofstra. Double-teamed Eric Carter off the bat. I'm sure Northeastern did the same thing. But it was a good bounce back. You get contributions. The field, Horton plays his 41 minutes, obviously, with overtime. But Colin Goss, Ryan Johnson all get 10-plus minutes. must is getting a little more used to going deeper on the bench. He's players to not, again, having as great of contributions as the starters. But for them to be able to go seven deep, maybe eight deep if you want to stretch it and get contributions, it's nice to know. Because later in the year, when we face Charleston in, what, a week, a week and a half when Charleston uh, comes up, you're going to need to go deep in your bench with them.
1: And there's still so much season left to go. You really would like to see at least seven guys playing like 10-plus minutes. But even, like you said, eight, maybe nine could get in against Northeastern. No Jacob Cushing still. He's still out of the lineup. Uh, But it's better, at least. It's a step in the right direction from where – Last year, he couldn't pull Ryan Daly off the floor. The dude was playing thirty-eight, thirty-nine minutes in almost every game in CIA play. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast.
0: So, I I set this up as a change Jake's mind thing. Yeah, yeah. So, I'll, so the three statements that I'm going to make. First of all, prefaceing for those that don't know what the heck change shakes mind is is i'm going to make a statement a claim to brandon and brandon's job is basically to change my mind but the important thing is brandon can't talk about anyone else besides who i'm I'll do my best not to. <laughs> right if i say nicole nabosi is going to score 40 million points brandon can't say oh well i think these other people will take a load of the scoring for that question he might have to but he's going to try to stay away from talking to other people so the first thing is I'm going to talk about the entire Delaware basketball team. Last year, they had three players averaging above 10 points per game. Nicole and obviously leading them all with 17. For this year, I'm going to make the statement that Delaware will have only one player average 10 plus points per game this year. And that one player is going to be Abby Gonzalez.
1: Okay. So I'm changing your mind to say that there will be more than just one player. Right. I think Simone DeVries will definitely be a mo- over that mark. DeFries last year was one of those players well over 10 points per game. She was second in scoring on the team to Nicole Anabosi. It's been rough in the early part of this season for DeFries. She's been relegated to the bench. She only played 15 minutes against St. Joseph's. But I think eventually she'll work her way back into the starting lineup because this is a team that needs scoring. It flat out needs somebody to put the ball in the basket, and she has the most experience doing that. I really thought coming into this year her game could be a lot more versatile if she expanded the range with her jump shot, and it doesn't seem like she was able to do that in the off season. But last year she was one of the best blue hens driving to the basket, and that's something that this team could really, really use, and I think eventually she'll be back into that role. Right now she's at 9.3 points per game, but because of the playing time it is going down, I think it would take the kind of effort to be averaging – 14 or 15 over the second half of CAA play, if she can work herself back into the lineup over an Allison Lewis or a Rebecca Lawrence. Another name I'll throw out there, though, is Jasmine Dickey, the freshman. She's at 8.8 points per game right now. Hasn't really been that efficient of a score at 32.2% shooting from the field, but she's been a beast on the boards. And I think she gets enough putbacks and enough little handoffs inside from drivers like Abby Gonzalez that she could get to that 10 point per game mark. And again, the Blue Hens will need somebody to do so if they want to live up to their preseason goals of being at the semifinal level or beyond where they were a season ago. So uh, Simone Defries, Jasmine Dickey, maybe not the most flashy of scorers. I don't think they get much over 10 points per game, but I think both of them have a pretty good shot at doing so.
0: Yeah, I think Jasmine Dickey is probably the most interesting one that you said because, and again, kind of paraphrasing what you said, somebody needs to do the scoring. Realistically, no one has to score in a basketball game, but you're going to get the ball and someone needs to put the ball up. And I think offensive flow-wise, Jasmine Dickey might be the best recipient of that because the guards are going to Abby Gonzalez and Bailey Cargo, whether they're uh, at their top level, know how to funnel the ball around. I think Jasmine Biggie is an attractive target to get the ball, too. I think a, yeah, I think let's go saying. to the defense. Sorry. But, no, I was just going to say I agree with that.
1: Like, I think she's in that position where she could get assisted on half of those points.
0: So look at the defensive end here. The Blue Hens last year finished fourth in the CAA in scoring defense, holding opponents to about 60.4 points per game. Currently, they sit at the seventh spot just a a bit higher with 63.6 points per game. I'm going to make the statement that the Blue Hens as a whole, their defensively, will fall to 10th on this list. I think the Blue Hen defense will fall to 10th, meaning they will give up the most points on the defensive end. Currently, Elon is last with 71.5 points per game, but I think that the Blue Hens will finish around that range and 10th on the scoring defense list.
1: That's rough. That's really rough, and I do think that's a legitimate possibility if the season continues on its current trajectory. But I would say to kind of pump the brakes a little bit, they haven't played CIA opponents yet. They've had some very tough matchups, including number 5 Maryland back on the 20th before the holiday, where they gave up 77 points. And I think you come back down to earth a little bit with some CIA opponents that'll be more in the neighborhood of high 50s, low 60s on their good nights, uh, some of the teams that Delaware was ranked above in the CAA preseason uh, coaches poll. That being said, I also think what contributes to that for Delaware and what will keep them out of the basement is the pace at which they play. This team hasn't really been getting out there and running and and putting a lot of points on the board themselves. So I think by nature, their games are going to be lower scoring, even if they're losing those games. I don't think the other team will have that many possessions to put up 70 plus points a night to plummet Delaware uh, on average to the bottom of the CAA rankings. I'd like to see maybe where they are adjusted for pace and for possessions in each game because then maybe they'd be closer to the basement in the CAA. But I do think that their pace being a little bit slower will prevent them from falling all the way to that
0: level. Let's stay on the defensive end here. Last year, Nicole Anabosi led the CAA in rebounds per game. She finished with about 12. and next closest was nine rebounds per game. This year... Jasmine Dickey is first in the CAA in rebounds per game with 9.5. My statement is that Jasmine Dickey, well, let me rephrase that. A Delaware player will lead the CAA in rebounds per game. I phrase it like that because Simone DeFries and Mikaida Nicholas are both on that list. They're Simone DeFries at 15, uh, Mikaida at 18. I think that Delaware has a real shot. Whether it is because they miss a lot of baskets and somebody needs to get maybe offensive boards, but I think that the Delaware team, whether it's Jasmine Dickey, Simone DeVries, somebody will lead the CAA in rebounds per game for Delaware.
1: Yeah, your point on the offensive reboundings, uh, offensive rebounds is absolutely absolutely right. Jasmine Dickey on the season is averaging three offensive boards per game, so she's at six and a half defensive rebounds. I, I think of those players, the most likely to lead the CAA in rebounding is Dickey, which probably shouldn't come as any surprise. She's leading the CAA in rebounding right now. But I will say she's undersized compared to a Nicole Anabosi, a, a forward who's typically in position to make those defensive rebounds. Dickey's 5'10", 5, 5'11". 5, she plays more of the three, sometimes the four, for Natasha Adair's team. So I think that works against her. I think she padded those rebounding stats with a couple high rebounding performances earlier in the season. So if we took maybe her last three or four weeks of play, that number average rebounds would be a little bit lower. So if she continues on that pace, I think she'll be pulled down to the seven or eight rebounds per game area. Uh, And at the same time, those offensive rebounds aren't always there. And if, if she's doing a little bit more of the scoring, if the team picks it up a little bit offensively, She'll have less opportunities on the glass, which could be a good thing for the Blue Hens, but I think would pull her off the top of the leaderboard in the CIA.
0: Brandon, I'll give you one more quick one, because I think this one's actually very interesting when you look at it. Delaware has one player in the top 15 of field goal percentage, currently Simone DeVries. I'm going to say, and I think you know where I'm going with this, Delaware will have zero players in the top 15 of field goal percentage. I know these are all negative change-my-mind questions, (laughs) but I want you to talk about the positives, talk about why it's possible. I say zero players in the top 15 of field goal percentage. Simone de currently at sixth.
1: Well, I think the top top thing supporting your case is the fact that Simone de hasn't been playing a whole lot recently. So if she doesn't have enough playing time to qualify for the leaderboard, she'll fall out of there despite whatever her number is. Uh, over the course of the season. Uh, But going to the positive, who could jump their way onto that list? It's a tough question. I think Bailey Cargo deserves a little bit more playing time than she's been getting. She right now is at 43.8%, and it's somebody who has had pretty high-scoring games. She scored 20 against Gardner-Webb and then was basically relegated back to her minimal minutes after that game. She scored 13 back against Lafayette. She's probably the best shooter on this team, though maybe she hasn't performed like it, but I think just on ability level, she probably is or maybe second best to Abby Gonzalez. They could use her a little bit more on the lineup for offense. And if if that's the case, if she does get into the lineup a little bit more, she could jump into that conversation in terms of field goal percentage. Right now, she would be third on the team, but somebody like Adson left and Cargo herself don't really have enough minutes to qualify for the leaderboard, if you will. Um, But at 43.8% right now in the season and 39.3% from three, cargo averaging seven points per game. Maybe that number jumps up to eight or nine if she gets a few more minutes and could shoot in the 45, 46% area and get into the leaderboard. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Jake and I will take you through the college football playoff where once again... We have Clemson and Alabama set to square off in the national championship to be played Monday night. Clemson and Alabama, it has become nearly a yearly tradition at this point. Where do you stand on that debate, if you will, on whether or not you like that these teams have, have been in the championship for so many years, if you dislike it? Uh, you know, Kind of where, where do you stand on this whole thing, Jake? It's not something we've talked about a whole lot, but – It certainly has been uh, year after year after year that these teams have been in it.
0: I think it's incredible. I think it's one of the best things for the sport. And if you're on the other side saying, I don't like watching Clemson and Alabama play for the national championship. You want to watch Alabama play Michigan? No. You want to watch Clemson play Notre Dame in the finals? No. These are the two teams that you want to go head to head against each other. Yeah, there's no parity in the college football world, but why do you need parity? You have two of the best teams in what is probably the best rivalry in college football to date playing in the biggest game of college football. There's no reason to believe any other team would make the right fit. I agree with
1: you, and I also would say to the people crying for a larger playoff, which maybe we get in a couple of years, maybe it goes from four to eight teams, but that doesn't quote unquote solve this if you think it's a problem because we already saw it with the the four teams with Notre Dame and Oklahoma Clemson and Alabama are way better than everybody else like if you go to 8 teams that just you're just going to end up with Clemson and Alabama again this year um you know Alabama already beat Georgia Georgia lost multiple games if you're crying for Georgia to be in it or if you're one of the people thinking UCF should have a chance they just lost in their bowl game they would definitely get beat up by Clemson or Alabama. So I'm kind of with you. I'm excited for the game on Monday. I'm not an intent follower of either program or really any of these big programs across the regular season, but it's fun to watch them match up. They're always great games. And I anticipate it will be another close one, especially with the quarterbacks that both teams have. In the past, Alabama hasn't always had a prolific quarterback, but now they have Tua, and they had some interesting packages in their bowl game with Jalen Hurts also on the field. And then Clemson's got the true freshman in Trevor Lawrence, who's been pretty fun to watch.
0: Yeah, Trevor Lawrence is in a position where he can become the first true freshman ever to start and win a national title game since... Thirty. And Tua
1: almost. Ago. I mean, Tua gets kind of the asterisk one coming in second half last year and leading Alabama to the right. win.
0: The last freshman to win it was like someone in Oklahoma like forty years ago, and then Tua's the best sophomore quarterback. He's maybe the, the best, best player season. in
1: the in college football. Like I don't know where he come down on Kyler versus Tua, but I would have selected Tua as the Heisman Trophy winner. No disrespect against Kyler Murray. He was fantastic and even played pretty well in that bowl game. But but Tua had one bad game. Otherwise, he was entirely dominant across the rest of the season.
0: This is the third time where the number one has ever played the number two. number one has never won that matchup. So if you're a Tigers fan, that's positive. It's the first time two undefeated teams will even play each other. So whoever wins this will be the first undefeated Team in the college football era to win all their 15, 16 games of the season. There's just so much on the line for this game that's larger than the individual trophy that goes to the winner. That is just, I mean, Alabama the a six-and-a-half-point favorite, but I think betting on both teams is a smart idea.
1: What does this game do for the legacies of Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney? Saban, the Alabama head coach, Sweeney the Clemson head coach does a win do anything in your mind to change where Nick Saban stands among the best college football coaches ever and I guess kind of same thing with Dabo Sweeney does he vault further up in that conversation if Clemson comes
0: out with a win nothing it does nothing for either of them and the difference (laughs) and and not
1: because they're not good because they've already they've already established themselves as some of the best I
0: would I would think that's where you're going with this (laughs) the difference between this and NBA in the first NBA was a Golden State Warriors like yeah they went 73 and 9 but then they lost and no one cares about that season I don't want to say no one cares but that's not the top thing that we talk about for Golden State Warriors talk about how they lost in college football it's a lot to get to that point it takes a lot to become a team in the national championship so even whoever the loser might be they still have a lot of accolades to put on from the season but you said it best they don't have enough room for any other athletes. Nick Saban is the greatest college football coach ever. Dabo is pretty up there. He's a great coach. He took a bunch of good Clemson teams with Hunter Renfro and company. As I say, Hunter Renfro. Hunter Renfro, a, uh,
1: you know, freshman in 2003, still still making head yeah. for
0: Clemson. The Hunter Renfro <laughs> and company team. There's nothing that will go wrong if a team loses. Besides that, they don't get a trophy.
1: I think it's really been interesting to watch how Alabama has evolved over the past couple of years. And I think if you had any question marks about Nick Saban's legacy, those were answered when this team last year became spread read option with Jalen Hurts. And now they're a little read option, a little RPO, some power football, but they're also vertical downfield air raid with Tua at quarterback. And if you think back to... The first run of national championships for Nick Saban's Alabama team, even back to the previous format, it was Mark Ingram, Trent Richardson, the Bo Scarborough, these big, mauling running backs, and we're going to play, in my opinion, a little bit more boring power football and win with defense, and we're going to beat you 21-14. to Now they can play any style. They can go play a 49-42 game in the national championship and win. And that's really, I think, a credit to the coaching staff. And it, it almost runs parallel to what we talk about with Andy Reid and the Chiefs, the way that he has evolved over his coaching career, kind of similar to what Nick Saban has been able to do with Alabama.
0: The interesting part about all of this to me is that both teams' defenses are the better unit. Both teams have better defenses than they do offenses, if that sentence makes sense.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm with has, you. They both, I mean, they, yeah, these guys I, have NFL guys top and bottom on
0: both defenses. I mean, Quinn and Williams, the defensive lineman for Alabama, is a monster. I mean, he's, yeah, he's one he's of top the five defensive lineman ever. Oh, he'll be the number one pick. And if he's not the number one pick, I demand a recount.
1: No no love the, for Bosa?
0: No. They, <laughs> you, I mean, Quinn and Williams is, is a beast, thing. yeah. Put them side by side. Bosa's great. and Especially because Arizona doesn't... They'd rather get a lineman than an edge rusher uh, outside linebacker. Uh, They'll probably take Quinn and Williams. But then Clemson has the best defensive line in the college football landscape. And they are doing it without their stud All-American Dexter Lawrence who suspended because he failed the drug test. But that's besides the point. There's both really strong defensive units and i'm really interested to see how tua wants to handle that because oklahoma was good on defense but they weren't giving him fits right but now this clemson defense especially the defensive line we know Tua, we like her and we know that they like to run that might be a tough matchup
1: the college football national championship is monday night it's alabama versus clemson Uh, There's also the FCS National Championship, that tournament continuing on, and they had a couple-week hiatus, kind of like the FBS does. That will be in just two days. North Dakota State battling against Eastern Washington. How about the line for this game? Right now it's minus 13.5 in North Dakota State's favor, the heavy favorites going into this game. Well,
0: we know why. They're really good. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we saw Easton Stick dribbling a football like a basketball. He's a wizard. (laughs) That team's great. And we've seen it time and time again, besides that JMU miraculous run. And JMU was very good that year. North Dakota State's just better than everybody. And, frankly, it's not even close. And you can see it by the line.
1: I agree. I think it's going to be probably, what is it, National Championship 7 in the last eight years if they win? Yep. I mean, I That's a dynasty. That is the definition, and they have a great chance to do it. We'll get Teddy on the phone to check the (laughs) dynasty definition. Exactly. I guess James Madison didn't quite have the dynasty. That was the talk. I said this team could be a dynasty. They won in 2016, haven't been back since. They lost the Colgate after beating Delaware in the playoffs in the first round, and now they have a new head coach. Mike Houston left their staff to go to East Carolina, where he'll be the head coach. Kurt Signetti comes from Elon to replace him. The Blue Hens, however, also have a few coaching changes. Offensive coordinator Matt Simon, as we know from uh, talking about this a couple weeks ago, is was out as offensive coordinator, mutual decision, so they say, for him to leave after the season. Delaware announced a couple weeks ago Jared Ambrose, Towson's offensive coordinator, will take over the same role with the Blue Hens. And Bill Cubit, a longtime coach across the college and high school football levels, will come on as a position coach and also as a assistant offensive uh, coach of sorts, kind of just another, another uh, mind to have in the room. Jake, and I, you'll step aside here for a moment, but real quick before you go, Jared Ambrose and Bill Cubit, your thoughts on the two new coaching
0: hires for the blue Hens. Jared Ambrose is who I'm really interested in. He comes to us from Towson. And if we want to give one idea of what an offensive coordinator did at Towson, just look at what Flacco did in the backfield there. I mean, he was, by far the most successful quarterback in the air, We saw it against Delaware, and he was so strong, that entire team, that entire game. But having him now as a Delaware offensive coordinator is kind of the best outcome. Because now Pat Kehoe and company, now J.P. Caruso, or whoever they're going to put at quarterback, I don't even know. Uh, but right I don't now, think it's going to be
1: J.P. Caruso. Right. <laughs> Kehoe, maybe, or Anderson.
0: Um, so... I think it's a great fit for him. I think they're going to do great things, and I think adding another person on the coaching staff for a positional role is never bad, but I think Ambrose is a big deal here.
1: All right. We'll talk to you in a couple, Jake, for our NFL picks around the huddle at the end of the show. Yep. All right. And continuing on, kind of with that thought, I, I agree with Jake that Jared Ambrose is a pretty solid hire for the role. Danny Rocco, when... They announced that Matt Simon would no longer be with the team. He said he was looking for a coach who has experience at this level doing it in a lot of different ways, that he wasn't a guy who would be tied to a certain system because, like Jake was kind of saying, who knows who's going to be playing quarterback? Is it Pat Kehoe, maybe more of a drop-back passer, kind of a power runner too when he's healthy? Or would it be Nolan Henderson, who you probably want to run a little bit more speed option, a little bit more spread for a really athletic, quick guy, or maybe even Anthony Paoletti, who projects as more of a pocket passer. So the offense will have to adapt to its personnel. Is there a bell cow running back on this team, or will they be more spread? What do the wide receivers look like? Are they faster, quicker, smaller guys, or big red zone targets? All of those are still questions that we don't have answers for yet. So who's going to be the guy who can push all the right buttons? And Jared Ambrose has done it at this level. And Towson did it kind of both ways. You look at the passing attack, one of the best in the CAA behind Tom Flacco, who was the best player in the CAA on the offensive side of the football, but they also had a very solid running attack behind Shane Simpson. They did a little read option stuff with Tom Flacco. They also let him scramble outside of the play structure. And it all combined to have the best offense in the CAA a season ago. Obviously, it helps to have that talented personnel in a guy like Tom Flacco to lead your offense And the talented running back, James Simpson, they also had a very good offensive line. But if he can bring you know 75% of that to the Blue Hens, that could be something that puts them over the top. It was an offense that, through the final few weeks of the season, I wrote about it then and I still kind of believe it. I still do believe it now. They got a little unimaginative. I thought they could have been more aggressive against James Madison. They had to be the team making big plays down the field because James Madison was the more talented team. Delaware needed a few momentum-turning plays, and they were never able to get any of those going. They did not pick up a first down on their first six drives of that game. Eventually, when they got a little something going offensively, it was a little too late. Kehoe turned the ball over, wasn't getting the ball out of his hands quick enough, and he couldn't really move because of the injury. So can you get an offensive mind who provided those limitations can still build a successful offense. Could Delaware have been a little bit more quick pass down the stretch in the season? Could you have designed something that gets Kehoe a little bit more time without him having to move in the pocket? Or do you admit, okay, he can't move in the pocket. Let's get the ball out of his hands a little bit more quickly. Delaware was unable to do those things in the final few games of the season a year ago, and the offense 10 points a game in those final three games after being mid to top of the pack in the CAA through the middle of the season. And they have that big game against the Tigers, and then from there, the offense really sputtered into the finish line. We'll see if Jared Ambrose and Bill Cubit can bring a little bit more juice to that Delaware coaching staff and to this Delaware football team moving forward into 2019.